Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy! Hello everyone, it's Kurt Kroon, one of the co-pastors at Cascade. Unfortunately, the first part of this message uh, didn't get recorded. But you're going to be listening to Alan Bradley, who works at the Clackamas Women's Services, talking about sexual and domestic violence. And then later, uh, myself and my co-pastor Sarah will get up, have a conversation with Alan. So hopefully you're able to catch up um, and be able to uh, receive from this great Sunday. Thanks. There's a new person attending your church who's living in sin because she left her husband and she doesn't have grounds for that, right? Like she, they, they sort of like followed her and trying to gain a lot more control over her, right? So that, that happens a lot. All right, next slide for me. And then, uh, oh yeah, common beliefs about victim services. Um, victim services, we get this a lot at our agency. People who are coming out of these faith communities are like, victim services are anti-God. They, are, uh, they don't hold my values. They're anti-men, which we get a lot. We're called Clackamas Women's Services. Um, so we're, you must hate men, right? Uh, no, we don't. Uh, right. Yeah, that's good, correct answer. We, all have, we actually serve everyone, um, even though we're called Clackamas Women's Services. There's lots of male survivors that we serve as well, so we don't, we don't like, we serve all genders, is, is what we say. Uh, and then victim services are going to uh, push me to leave or divorce, which is not what we do either. We don't push anyone to do anything that they don't want to do. We ask them, what are your goals? What do you want to do? What do you need to do to stay safe? A lot of times, victims in a domestic violence relationship, they'll stay, they don't leave right away. They'll stay in there because leaving is really dangerous, right? When a person chooses to leave and their, and their partner gets wind of that, that's when they ramp up the violence. And so we want survivors to make their own goals, and we want to support them and what they're going to do to stay safe because they're the experts in their situation. And if they are like, hey, if I leave, like, my husband's going to really do something harmful, right? Uh, we want them to do whatever they need, or, they're going to, or their kids are at risk, right? So we want them to be safe. We don't push them to do anything they don't want to do. All right, go ahead and move on to the next slide. So what survivors might be telling themselves, why did God let this happen to me? Is it my fault that I can't save my marriage? This is my cross to bear. They might use that kind of language. Um, am I being punished for my sins? Why doesn't God hear my prayers? Do I have to forgive? That's a big one, right? People feeling pressure and expected to forgive their partner when, and, um, and they're not giving room to just be angry, right? And that, that space to be like, I don't want to forgive. Don't tell me about forgiveness. I don't want to hear that word. Right? But then they feel a lot of guilt over that too. Like, I don't want to forgive, but I should forgive. And they have that like inner turmoil. And that's a place where faith communities can really provide that compassion and that support, letting people know that like, nope, you don't have to forgive. You know, or forgiveness is a process. Or like, it's okay for you to be angry and mad. Like, that's fine. You have a right to be angry and mad. You know, you've had a lot happen to you. Um, will God hate me if the marriage ends? Am I a bad Christian? And then this too, this last one, I worded it kind of weird, but it's like, my unbelieving spouse will be saved through me. This idea that, like, my husband is abusing me because he's struggling in his, in his Christianity or he's struggling in his faith, and if I can just stay really faithful, then I can sort of bring him along. And it's that idea of, like, I'm, I'm suffering, and my suffering is a virtue, right? 
All right, next slide. I think this is the last one I got. So what do survivors need from faith communities? They need to be heard and believed. Um, and, and believed is really important, right? Like when a, someone tells you, like, this happens to me or this happened to me, telling them, that, like, I believe you, uh, that goes a long way. because I think a lot of people are expecting to people, people saying, like, you're making it up, right? Or are you sure it happened that way? Um, and so telling them, you know, you know, this idea that, like, people make things up or they're falsely accusing, like, that does happen sometimes. But, like, by and large, people, when they say that they've been assaulted or when they say that they've been abused, like, usually they're telling the truth. So we always tell people to believe them, validate them. Um, they need confidentiality, transportation or child care, referrals to advocates, and uh, sermons and teachings focusing on domestic violence and sexual assault, I think even though it's really, really tough to talk about this topic, it's also, there's a validating aspect that comes from that, right? That this, this church feels like this issue is important enough to bring it to the surface so that it's not taboo, it's not swept under the rug, but we're talking about it because it impacts so many people. Um, but they also need interpretations of religious texts that support and encourage the survivor, right? That emphasize the safety of the person. And a lot of times survivors are told, especially survivors within a faith-based sort of marriage or relationship, they're told from their abuser what to think all the time. And what survivors need is, to, is help separating what the survivor believes and thinks rather than what they've been taught to, or told to believe. And so that's the role, of, that's a supporting thing that faith communities can do. So when someone's like, you know, God's going to be mad if I leave. Or like, you know, if I divorce my husband, he's going to be really mad at me. And, and so asking them questions like, well, you know, who, t who told you that? Right? Who told you that? And why, why might that help your husband who's abusing you? Why might that help him if you do believe that? Right? Like sort of like helping them separate what the garbage that they've been taught with what do you believe? And then uh, understand that leaving a domestic violence relationship increases their risk of harm. So not pressuring a person to leave, but letting them do what they need to do to stay safe. So that's how we can support survivors. I think uh, if, you can, if you can click over, oh yeah, I got one more. Um, I don't know if I'm over my 20. Okay, so <laughs> I'm on time. <laughs> got time on it. So uh, one is reframing what success looks like. So I've, I've talked about that. That's what our, our advocates do a lot. And so if, if a survivor's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seek support from my faith community, um, anticipate that a, like everything that could go wrong might go wrong, right, with that. So uh, reframing what success looks like might be like, hey, you spoke your, your, you spoke your truth. That's really important. Or you've really inspired other survivors in that faith community even though maybe the church leadership didn't respond the way that you wanted or some people didn't really believe you, like you really were um, an inspiration to other people and that was really brave of you. And so that's success. Uh, encourage her to say no to marriage counseling and explain why it's not safe. That's a really good one. Anticipate their safety to be jeopardized, right? And so don't like... You don't want to like, uh, it's not like all doom and gloom, right? But it's, it is like, hey, like expect that like this might happen or like this has happened in other churches. And I just, just want to talk about if this does happen, like what can you do to like keep yourself safe? So faith communities blaming and turning against her, church leadership becoming abusive, expecting him, her to forgive him. And then if that does happen, if a church is like really not supportive or turning against the victim, um, helping them to sort of find other 
communities maybe outside of that faith community for that additional support that they need. So that's, that's how we can help people stay safe. Yeah, that's all I got. Yeah, thanks. So what we want to do now, if Sarah, you can come up, um, is we wanted to kind of further a conversation. And you should probably you introduce yourself. Um, I'm Sarah. I'm the co-pastor. Is that, all, is that what you want? Okay. <laughs> this is your first time up. I wanted people to know who you were. They didn't know already. Sarah. Oh. I mean, yeah. Today. Today? Today? Yeah. She's been up, she's been up, been up a couple times. Today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I was very confused. What we wanted to do to kind of wrap up this time as we bring, is we wanted to have a conversation. Uh, one of uh, the things I think can be damaging is a lot of times in churches, you can have a conversation like this and be like, see, aren't we glad we aren't one of those churches? But actually, you're not. You just started a conversation. And we actually don't believe we're a great church for people that have been in domestic violence or sexual abuse. But we wanted to have a conversation about that so that you all can participate. Because it isn't, although Sarah and I as co-pastors have a responsibility to create a structure and a system that supports a healthy church response, we ultimately create that environment. And a lot of these harmful teachings or things are actually experienced not just from pastoral uh, support, but actually members. So how are we all coming into a conversation about how do we build and create this? And if this is your first Sunday and you're like, oh, this doesn't apply to me, no. You still have great observations and insight into how churches could do this poorly or how they can do it really well. So to start, we wanted to ask Alan, uh, as someone who's been a part of Cascade, what are some aspects of Cascade that are kind of helpful in this area, and what are some aspects that aren't as helpful? Yeah. Can we caveat also that you were a pastor before you did oh, this? Yeah. I feel like that's yeah. a helpful piece of information of why yeah. you're passionate about this as well. Yes. Yeah, I used to be a pastor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, so what has been helpful, and, and one of the things that has drawn my family to continue to be a part of this community is that I think that this church allows people to ha have space to think what they think and feel what they feel, whether that's like positive things or negative things, right? If a person, um, I remember one Sunday, um, you guys had a couple, couple counselors up here talking about something, oh, about, I think it was prayer. Yeah, it was prayer, right? And like, and, and they just gave people permission to feel reservation about talking about this topic because people have baggage around anything, regarding faith communities. And so I think that's one of the things that is an asset to this church as a, as a church that's a safe place for survivors is you give people room to be angry. You give people room to feel defensive and to wrestle with some of the things that they're processing rather than telling them what they should or shouldn't feel. So that's, that's huge. Uh, and then one thing that I would say is um, detrimental, not about Cascades specifically, but I think with small churches in general is everyone tends to know everyone's business. And so that confidentiality piece is huge. And so, um, and I think that that's always something to sort of work on, whether the church is big or small, is how can we maintain survivors' confidentiality so that their business isn't sort of spread everywhere and then it's no longer a safe environment for them. So that confidentiality is big. Yeah. 
I was thinking also while you're talking, when we had a conversation about the difference of having this conversation for someone who's older than 18, and then how that differs yeah. when they're under 18, and kind of the stress. Like, we have lots of kids and students in this space. Yeah. And so um, even just a reminder of, like, what it looks like to have an advocate versus a um, someone who's a mandated reporter and how careful we have to be of how we're having those conversations. Yeah. Right? Because this is different if I'm talking to an adult versus if I'm talking to a child. Mm -hmm. Personally, as a mandated reporter, it's yeah. different. Yeah. Yeah. So that's something I didn't mention earlier. So our advocates, the role of an advocate in Oregon is there's advocate, this thing called advocate privilege, so, uh, which says that, that advocates, when they're working with survivors, have to keep things confidential, right? They're not mandated reporters. So, like, I'm not, I'm a confidential advocate, so, like, I work a lot in, in schools, and I work with a lot of minors, obviously, and so if, uh, if, say, a high school kid or junior high kid came and disclosed to me what's happening, I'm required to keep that confidential, Whereas somebody who's in a pastoral role or a teacher, a lot of teachers I work with or counselors, they're required to report that, which is helpful in a lot of ways, right? It's, it's really helpful sometimes to report it, get help, get that person in a safe place. But sometimes reporting things isn't always the safest, especially when a person is living with their abuser and say something is reported and then investigated and then nothing's done. Like, there's no action taken. Now the abuser knows that the victim has said something to somebody, right? So that's where sort of we come in is, like, we're confidential. And, like, we'll help a person report if they want to. But we just kind of give that person control over whether that happens or not. Yeah, and I just think that's such a powerful distinction, if that makes sense. If a kid comes to me, what would happen is I would go half, I'm a mandated reporter, so I would make a phone call. And so what I found so powerful in our conversation is how we can bridge together in terms of having an advocate working alongside of you talking about, hey, how can we have you have conversations with someone like your pastor? Yeah. And also when I talk to a kid, one of the first things I tell them is, just so you know, I'm a mandated reporter. I would stop them in that conversation. But that can be really painful also, if that makes sense, because it stops trust all of a sudden in what I'm required to do versus what Bradley or Alan would be required to do. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I always want to flip your two names. Is that everybody? Sometimes, yes. Sometimes yeah, there you go. It's common. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. And then, Alan, did you have a, a question for us? Yeah. Uh, what is your greatest pastoral concern in doing church with survivors? Yeah. Uh, so this is something that uh, we've talked about is that ultimately these things happen in relationship and churches are relational institutions and bodies. And so it gets really messy and unclear. What do you do with an issue like this? So at Cascade, kind of the, the framing uh, narrative of it all is that we believe that God stands on the side of the marginalized and the oppressed always. So anyone who is without systemic power or anyone who's being abused in any kind of way, God is with that individual. And we see that story over and over again throughout Scripture. And yet the practicality of do we bar the doors for someone who's been accused of abusing another individual? Um, and we had a story that was shared. If you wouldn't mind talking about uh, you and your wife, Becky, had kind of talked about a situation that you had had before that I had never thought of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when we were on staff at a church, there was an abusive, uh, an abuser abusing their partner. And so we were supporting that. We had had a disclosure. Um, we're not minors. 
And so we had a disclosure from the victim, and then we went and, uh, or not, not I, but one other person went and confronted the abuser, um, and then left, and then the, the victim followed, right? And, that, and, that's, and that's something to keep in mind with domestic, domestic violence is, and I'm sure that many of you have seen this happen with friends and family and, and people in your lives, is um, people, when they're in abusive relationships and they want to leave and they recognize that it's abusive, they don't just leave and then it's done. A lot of times they leave and then they go back and they leave and they go back and they leave and go back. And that's a part of the process that most survivors go through is it's not always a clean break. There's an emotional bond. There's this thing called trauma bonding that um, some of you might be familiar with, but it's that trauma bonding that my abuser is really hurting me, but also they're meeting some of my needs. And so I have this attachment to this person. And so that's very tricky when you're being that support person for a survivor. So when it, when it came to, you know, we were talking about that, that training, um, we, we now, you know, we, lost, both, we lost, the, lost the survivor because we just went and like haphazardly confronted the, the perpetrator, um, the abuser, and that person has, had manipulated the victim so much where she just was like, you know, peace, I'm out of here. And that was, and then we lost that support. Yeah. So it's important, I think, to before talking to like an abusive individual to make sure, first of all, that the victim is safe and that knows that you're gonna go do this and, and that gives you permission to go do that. Like, like making sure that that victim is the person that's in control of what's happening with, when it comes to their situation. Yeah. And I think that kind of speaks to the complexity of the issue is that you'd want to step in and say, okay, you're not allowed here anymore, but if you lose relationship with the survivor, that's actually incredibly damaging. That Was that the best decision that could have been made? And all it says to say, what are our concerns, Pastoria, about this issue? Not doing it well, not doing it right, making mistakes on something that feels really significant and knowing that it's more complex is that we can run through lines and say, that's bad theology, that's a bad way of doing it. But sometimes doing it right is really complicated and it's terror-inducing pastorally. I don't want to participate in that. Um, and yet, there's ways that you can unintentionally still support that, and that's very difficult. I would say the other thing, just personally of my own concern as a female pastor and in light of the Me Too movement and um, kind of what, where I'm at with students and thinking through that more, I think I personally feel this responsibility with knowing that it's uh, more of the cases we hear about as female, not male, is being a really loud voice in church and um, kind of disrupting churches and friends' churches when I feel like we're not having female pastoral voices in it. Um, but in the process, I'm really scared of missing a voice, if that makes sense as well. Like I almost feel like terrified and stuck there if that makes sense, to step one way or the other to mess it up and then also to not be loud enough. So I think just really honestly speaking towards that tension and um, with kids and students, it's, a, you know, it's just so complex with both sides of this conversation to be sitting with a minor and a not minor. Is, there are different rules and there are different conversations and so continuing to get good training in both areas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so to that end... Um, what we wanted to, to do was invite you all that you have now seen and you know who Alan is and to consider Alan as a resource, as someone to talk to that can help um, in all these kinds of ways and to feel that hopefully Alan is someone, when you think about Cascade and what are the ways that Cascade can do this well, 
that hopefully Alan is obviously a trusted resource for us and how to do this well. Any insights you have, I hope that you would feel free to share those with Alan. And I hope that you would feel free to share them with Sarah and I as we journey forward in what this looks like. So would you do me a favor of thanking Alan for being willing to come here and share his expertise this morning? Uh, so, to that end, we hope that the conversation is ongoing um, and not done. Um, but one of the, a couple of things that we are going to do is that it wasn't just like, hey, this is a Sunday where we're doing uh, DV, and we're going to put out some material and then we'll be done. But that's going to be an ongoing part of Cascade. So those resources will always be on the resource table um, kind of going forward. Um, and if there's any other insights or ways you think, how do we create more of a safe space here at Cascade? Again, please let us know.